This episode contains discussions of topics that some may find triggering. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Man Enough. I'm Justin Baldoni. I'm Liz Plank. I'm Jamie Heath. And uh, look, we're not a uh, we're not a current event show. Mm-mm. This is not a news show. This is a podcast that focuses on masculinity. However, there are certain times, and unfortunately, it's happening oh, daily and weekly, where current events and the conversation around masculinity are intertwined and enmeshed, and we would be remiss to not do a special episode, specifically this week, about gun violence and how it relates to masculinity and how it is gendered. And uh, so what I what I hope and what I'm going to ask of you, if you are listening to this, if you are somebody who is triggered, pun intended, by the conversation, um, somebody who maybe believes in the right to bear arms and uh, and and thinks that this conversation is merely political, I, I would encourage you to stay in the room, which is something that we talk about a lot. If this was maybe sent to you by somebody that cares about you, um, encourage you to just listen just as we are, um, when lives are at stake, the least that we could do, and perhaps the most manly thing we could do is to shut up and listen, to maybe hear somebody else's point of view and be willing and open to let that into our hearts. So with that, uh, Liz Plank, can you tell the audience a little bit about Jackson Katz, who is our incredible guest today? Yes, we wholeheartedly couldn't think, yeah, of, of, of anyone, um, who's uh, better to speak on this issue than Dr. Jackson Katz, who's been on our, he, he's a friend of the Man of Pod. Um, he is an educator. He's an author. He's a social theorist and academic who's internationally renowned for his pioneering scholarship and activism on issues of gender, race, um, violence, and particularly masculinity. He's just the foremost expert on all of this. So he has a TEDx talk that's called Violence Against Women is a Men's Issue, and it has 5 million views. Uh, it's very good if you haven't seen it already. So He's good. the hmm. co-founder of the Multiracial Mixed Gender Mentors in Violence Prevention Program. So he basically pioneered the bystander approach uh, when it comes to uh, violence against women. He's um, just been a major figure thought leader in calling for gun safety. And he um, actually was the first person to write an article in a mainstream media uh, outlet 23 years ago in the Boston Globe after the Columbine shooting. He was the first to really link gun violence to masculinity. Uh, And this week, he um, published a really important call to action in Ms. Magazine that really encourages us all to look in the ways that, you know, guns are woven deeply into cultural narratives uh, about American masculinity. Mm -hmm. No, it's good we've got him right now. Um, to share his thoughts and to maybe put some ideas um, for us to all think about and consider. Yeah. So let's let's jump in let's and, and hear from him. Let's do it. We'll be right back. This is Man Enough. Hello and welcome back to the Man Enough podcast. Um, today we have Mr. Jackson Katz. Um, Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. It's unfortunate that you are with us today, but we're so grateful that you are with us today. Um, before mm-hmm. we before we dive in, uh, I know you're making time to do this. You're about to go give a speech probably about this very thing. How is your heart this morning? How are you feeling? 
Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hopeful that we're having this conversation. And, and honestly, that, that there are increasing numbers of people who are having these kinds of conversations. I mean, I think there's a lot of bad news in the world these days. And, and I, as somebody who directly deals with that, you know, in my work, you know, issues of violence and war and peace and, and rollbacks of fundamental rights and school shootings and mass killings. And it seems like pretty over overloaded all the, all the bad news, but, um, Hmm. there are better worlds possible and, and that, and that we don't have to just accept the status quo and, and working on these issues with folks like yourselves makes me feel, you know, hopeful, even though it doesn't Hmm. mean that I'm so it's such a beautiful outlook is to be hopeful. Oh, um, I, okay. Let's just dive right in because something that's confused me Liz writes about this a lot in her book. Um, Jackson, you've been talking about this for years. Is it almost feels like we're willing to look at every possible reason that mass shootings and gun violence happen, except the gendered reason. We can look everywhere to mental health, to access to guns, to all of these things, but it's almost like we will, it's almost like people can't say men commit these acts of violence, even though we know that it's like, what, 99%, 98% men. Can you just walk us through as if we are students in your classroom of why we cannot separate uh, violence, specifically gun violence and mass shootings from masculinity and how they're interconnected? Sure. Well, Thank you, Justin, um, for even, you know, for, for opening up the space for the, for the conversation. Um, I think the central factor in school shootings, for example, for, I think the central factor in school shootings is gender. We can talk about mental illness. We can talk about personality disorders. Of course, we can talk about obviously the availability of guns. Those are all important pieces of the, of the puzzle. But I think gender is the central factor. And what do I mean by that? I mean, cultural ideologies and beliefs about manhood that shape boys and men's understanding of themselves as men and their relation to violence and violence as it's connected to the both the performance of manhood and the means by which men and young men are trained and taught to gain something or to take back something that's been taken from them one of the ways that i talk about school shootings in particular in the in the in the way of making the case that gender is the single most important factor is a little thought exercise imagine if 99% of school shootings were done by girls and young women would anybody be talking about mental illness on the one side or gun availability on the other before talking about the fact that girls were the ones doing 99% of the no, shootings no they would have they would have removed the ability for women to buy guns Right, after like right. the second shooting, the women would have no rights to even buy a gun after the second shooting. That's what exactly, would happen. exactly. And everybody would be talking about the fact that it was girls doing it, and that it would it wouldn't be like a a, a a second level analysis. It would be like the first thing they would people would say, "What is it about femininity? What is it about cultural ideas about girls and, and, and womanhood? What is it about the particular life circumstances that girls and young women find themselves in that cause some of them, a small number, but some of them, to act out in this way?" But because boys and men represent the dominant group, 
it, the dominance goes invisible. And so I think part of what mm. we need to do, those of us who are concerned with shifting the paradigm, is we need to make visible what has been rendered invisible. And mm. this is historic. I mean, this is like, this, is, this isn't just a recent phenomenon. The, the whole idea that people, when they, people hear the word gender and think it means women, or, I mean, I know that's shifted with the trans challenges to heteronormativity, but people often hear the word gender and they think it means women. People hear the word race. They think it means you know, African-American or other people of color, people hear the word sexual orientation. They think it means, you know, LGB. In each case, the dominant group doesn't get attended to as if white people don't have some sort of racial identity or belong to some racial category, or as if heterosexual people don't have a sexual orientation, or as if men don't have a gender. Because in other words, if you're, if you represent the dominant group, you're, you, you are in a sense representing the norm against which others measure themselves. And the way this mm. plays out is that this invisibility cloak, if you will, prevents people from thinking about, for example, men as gendered beings. A lot of people think, oh, men, men are just people. You know, women, they're the ones who have a gender. They're the ones who are influenced by gender issues or people of color are the ones who have a race. White people are just people. And that's part of it. By the way, another, another way to think about this, Justin, is if it was about guns and avail gun availability on the one hand or mental illness on the other, why aren't 50% of school shootings done by girls? Girls have every bit the access to guns that boys do. Girls have every bit the um, mental health challenges. But a vanishingly tiny percentage of girls act out in this way. The point is, it's not just about gun availability or mental illness or personality disorder. It's about how gender interacts with that. Mm -hmm. And I think, what, to me, one of the key questions is, why are we so reluctant to say this out loud and have a discussion about it? Why is the mainstream media in the United States, in particular, so reluctant to say out loud that this is fundamentally about masculinity and, and, and boys and men's understanding of mm -hmm. themselves as gendered beings, as men, as young men, and then have a conversation about it that, like we're having right now? I have to say, I've been, I've been beating this drum and others have since the nineties. And it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating that I'll give an example. The New York Times did a piece just about two weeks ago, not even. Yeah. Yeah. After the Uvalde, uh, massacre, where it was a front page story that actually included discussions about the gender of the perpetrator and some of the, some of the reasons why that's important to talk about. But you know what the article was about? It wasn't about the gender. It was about the age of the perpetrator. So the headline was, why are so many young people doing these crimes? And then under the headline of, you know, age in the body of the text or the body of the article, there was some discussion about some of the particularly gendered aspects, but it didn't even merit a headline. And right. I'm talking about 20 years of school shooting uh, uh, media coverage it's rare to see anything close to an honest discussion about the fact that boys and men are doing it and then asking questions about why. Why won't we talk about it? Why is nobody, why are we so afraid to say that it's a gender issue? What is, what, like, what's behind that? Well, I mean, I, one, one reason that we're so afraid is that it gets the core issues of identity of the dominant group. This, what we're really talking about is having the dominant group, men. And again, I know that men as a category includes a whole range of, you know, um, of differences and hierarchies. We're talking critically about the dominant group. And I think a lot of men in particular, not only men, but a lot of men are filled with anxiety about talking about this, about introspection, about thinking about their own 
attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors. And by the way, the ways that many of us who are not, who in a million years wouldn't, you know, commit some kind of mass shooting, but nonetheless, we participate in a culture that helps to glorify and valorize violent masculinity. I mean, look at Hollywood films or video games or, I mean, violence as, as it's connected to core narratives about American manhood. That's like mom and apple pie, isn't it? In other words, violent American masculinity is almost like redundant because the, the, the narratives about American manhood, especially in this case, white American manhood, but not exclusively, are, um, are deeply woven into the fabric of sort of American identity. And by the way, the gun as, a, as, a, as an implement uh, and as an accessory for men, if you will, has been so deeply woven into the cultural and, and historical narrative of, a, of America and a certainly American masculinity that to then critically examine it, I think a lot of men, either consciously or unconsciously, don't want to go there. So in other words, it's easy to say that the, the shooter is some sick individual, he's some crazy person, he's some pathological monster, because that then gives us some distance. We don't have to think about, okay, wait a second. Maybe that is a monstrous act that that person created, but you know, uh, that per per perpetrated. But you know what? It's not instructive to think about these individual actors as completely divorced from the culture that produced them. And the culture that mm. produced them has a very long history of violent masculinity. And men have been violent in our society, whether it's the, the, the slaughter of Native Americans by the original white European colonial settlers, the uh, you know slavery as a form of institutionalized violence and brutality that was largely controlled by white men the 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 level of violence that's that's in our cultural dna is and men's violence is so deep and profound that i think that some people whether they're conscious of it or not don't want to open up that can of worms because it's then you still have to start talking about yeah. all the ways in which our both our history as a country and a civilization and to the present day, the ways that we identify as many of us as men has to be under the critical spotlight. And I think there's some real reluctance to do that. And by the way, last thing is I think that there's a lot of defensiveness because I think a lot of men do feel that any critique of these things is an attack on them. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of thinking it's an attack on them, and some women, in fact, participate in this because they don't want their sons being criticized or being attacked or they, right. they understand that men are more complicated than just they're not just killing machines they're human beings all of which we all know this but as a result of this defensiveness towards any critique of masculinity a lot of people don't even want to open up the can of worms and so a lot of women for example i talk to women all the time who say to me oh my god i'm so happy you're saying these things i'm so happy a man a white man is saying these things because when women try to say these kinds of things, and Liz is, a, is, is an exception, by the way, because Liz has been so out front in talking about this stuff. But a lot of women, including feminist women, don't want to say this stuff out loud because they don't want to get attacked <coughs> for being anti-male, for being for ganging up on men. And so they, they, so they sort of back away from it. And then a lot of men feel like if they have this kind of conversation, they'll be seen as somehow being... Um, yeah. Traitors, traitors, to are, traitors to our own gender, exactly. Right, which is total BS. And by the way, most yeah. of the most victims of gun violence are men and young men, but they're the victims of other men and young men's violence. Mm -hmm. and the, the idea that somehow it's anti-male to talk critically about the gun culture and the and the obsession with violence as an expression of masculinity that somehow it's unmanly to do this is total BS. And I, I'll say that I'll say that as emphatically as I can. And 
And I think that we need more men, especially in this current moment, who have the guts to say that out loud and not be afraid that somehow you're going to be unmanned as a result. Be man enough. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, man enough. You're not going to be man enough. It's the exact, by the way, it's the exact opposite is that, is that it takes more strength and self-confidence if you're, if you happen to be a man to say, this is messed up and you're not going to do this in my name. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, as a, for example, as a white man, I'm not going to be silent as other white men, you know, carry AR-15s to state houses to to prove that they're manly or attack the Capitol with guns because they couldn't win in a, in a, in a democratic, small D democratic election. They're going to use violence to get what they couldn't get peacefully. I'm not going to sit silently and let them speak for me and say that that's what men do or that's what white men do. No, that's what white men who are completely not meeting the moment of our historical times that we live in. That's what men who are trying to hold back the tides of democratic change and historical mm. progress. That's what those men do. I, that's not, doesn't represent me. And I, I know that I, as a man, and I think you all too, and you can speak for yourselves, obviously. I think that I speak for a lot of people. I think there's an awful lot of men who are sick of the, the violence and who are outraged by all these shootings, and these mass killings. They, a lot of them don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to be effective in, in counteracting it. But I think it's part of the counteracting is opening up space to talk about how cultural ideas about manhood are at the heart of the problem. Hmm. You're listening to the Mad Enough Podcast. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Mad Enough Podcast. Jackson, everything you're saying is so true. And, and you were really one of the first people to, you know, after Columbine, which was now several decades ago, you actually were the first person to write an article in a mainstream newspaper tying this to gender and masculinity. And I'm sure it must feel frustrating for you to keep having to push to have this angle. But your work is certainly working and reaching people. And I think we are at a really interesting point where Almost every huge problem that we have in our society, we can tie it to um, this unhealthy ideal that we have of masculinity. Even in the January 6th hearings, what we've heard is that the the Proud Boys, which is an organization that is really assembled and organized around an unhealthy ideal of masculinity. Now we know that what instigated it, the first person that actually broke the barricade, said a slur related to masculinity to a cop, basically questioned his manhood. That should be a headline, right? Like that, that to me when I learned that. And to your point about mental health, I think it's so important to talk about this because, um, there was a really good interview with a clinical psychologist that said, you know, you can fix mental health with medication, with therapy, right? There's ways to actually cope with these issues. But we're not, when, when, when we're talking about school shooters, um, they don't have, they don't fall into these categories of bipolar or having depression or anxiety. Actually, they are not able to treat them with pure sort of mental health or, 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 um, clinical sort of ways that you would address that. So in order to fix this problem, we actually need to go far beyond that and to look at these issues of entitlement, to look at these issues of, you know, um, people who think that they're owed something. And why do so many young men think Mm. that if they're not reaching this ideal, that somehow other people are responsible for that? So I'm just curious, um, from your perspective, how can we talk about masculinity in a way that people can receive it? Because, yeah, you've been doing this for a very long time. I think a lot of people feel defensive. How do we start? Well, thank you, Liz. I, I mean, I think one of the ways is we need adult men 
to be part of the conversation. We can't put the pressure on boys mm. to open up space to talk about stuff when adult men aren't. And that, that means adult men who are, have influence in the lives of boys. And that could be in a personal level, whether it's fathers, uncles, you know, um, grandfathers, coaches, teachers, obviously. Um, and then in the public culture, in other words, we need to model those of us who are adults need to model the fact that this is part of being a man is being honest, being, being introspective and having the courage to look inward and, and talk about your, the complexities of your emotional, of your emotional life. And by the way, it's important. And, and that, that way, if, if young boys see adult men doing that, it, 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 again, it creates some space for them. And by the way, we have to, those of us who are adults, we have to create those moments too. We can't mm. wait for boys to ask us to talk about this. We need to initiate yeah. the dialogue both on an interpersonal level, if we're, if we have boys and young men in our lives, but also if we have institutional authority, like, like we're, you know, superintendents of school districts, principals of high schools, teachers, coaches, we need to create the space for those kind of conversations. I also want to say just, just to get granular in terms of the, the motives of school shooters that doesn't get talked about in the mainstream. Most school shooters are boys who have been bullied marginalized, ridiculed, or shamed in some way, and they develop a revenge fantasy because most school mm -hmm. shootings are revenge fantasies enacted. And they develop a revenge fantasy. They figure out a way to get guns. They often, and which is not hard to do in this gun-crazy culture, they often um, give indications in, in the comments that they make, whether it's on social media or to other friends, about what they're planning to do, in part because this, the whole thing is a performance. They're trying to they're trying to reclaim their manhood, their sense of themselves as Someone the agents of their own life. And everybody, we have data. This is not like some theoretical, you know, construct here. This is, we have data of real school shooters who haven't killed, either killed themselves or been killed by police. Many, by the way, many school shooters are doing it as a suicide murder. Yeah. These are suicides. They're, they're yeah. murdering others, but they're also taking themselves out. But mm -hmm. some don't. And the ones who have either, you know, survived their, their school shooting, and then we can get data from them in subsequent interviews, or those who left manifestos or written writing, you know, writings behind journals and others, we, this comes up over and over again, that what they're doing is using violence redemptively to re regain something, to redeem their manhood. Now they're going to be in control. They've been pushed aside. They've been ridiculed. They've been mocked. They've been disrespected, but now they're going to be respected. And we have so much, not just from school shootings, we have so much data and common sense suggest that when people have a gun in their hand, especially, for example, think about an, a, a boy or a young man who's invested in the idea of masculine strength, but he's always been picked on and ridiculed. Now he has a gun in his hand or a big AR-15 and people are backing up. People are scared. People are like bowing to his will. That's a, it's, a, it's an inebriating sort of power that he's feeling, right? Yeah. Think about that. And by the way, that's another reason why I think people are really uncomfortable with talking about this because it's not just about school shooters that we have to talk about uh, as boys and young men. We have to talk about what is the whole gun rights movement about? What What is the whole movement? Why Why is Why has our country been so pathetic in a global scale? Why are we the the the, the international embarrassment because of our, our related to gun policy all over the world? People think we're complete barbarians. Mm. The level of gun violence that we have that we allow the, the the laxity of the laws that allow an eighteen year old to walk into a store and buy a a, a, a semi-automatic weapon with high-capacity magazines that can kill dozens and dozens of people in a short time. We have to have an honest conversation about how manhood and cultural beliefs about manhood lead a significant sector of our population to believe that 
their manhood is invested in owning a gun. And if you look at the data about why people own guns, I mean, there's a, there's a complex set of reasons. There's hunters, there's target shooters, but there's also this notion of man as protector of protector. his family. Mm-hmm. And you'll hear this narrative over and over again. You're not going to take my guns away from me and take my ability to protect my family away from me. In other words, it's about his manhood. It's not just yeah. about some abstract Second Amendment discourse. This is about core issues of identity. And by the way, women who buy guns are often doing it not for, to protect their family, but to protect themselves because they see their, their vulnerability to men's violence and feel like the only way that they can compensate for the lack of physical size and strength differential vis-a-vis the men who might assault them is to own a gun, which is the great equalizer in that context. So Mm. why are we having this conversation? Why don't we talk about why does a white guy, for example, put on camouflage uniform in an urban setting? And by the way, camouflage in an urban setting calls attention to yourself. It doesn't make you blend in. You put on camouflage and it makes you feel more masculine because of the images of masculinity of men wearing camouflage. It's a a wardrobe. It's a costume. But isn't that the key, right? Like that is associated with strength. And even the way that we talk about school shooters, it is representative of what you're saying, which is like they come in, people are bowing down, we're afraid. Is the, is the way to do it to tell a story about how weak that is to do that as a man? Yes, yes. And how weak it is to not have laws about gun rights. It's not bar- barbaric, it's weak. Like yeah, to talk about it in the framework and of masculinity. I would, that say, I would say, Liz, you're onto it. And I would say, but I would say instead of saying it's weak, we have to redefine what it means to be a protector. Yeah. So for example, is are we really protecting our kids? Yeah. Are yeah. we really creating a exactly. society where people are feeling safe? Isn't mm-hmm. it the exact opposite? Mm-hmm. Yep. Isn't, isn't the current regime of gun laws and the, and the and the accessibility of guns creating a situation where we're failing to protect our kids? And isn't there a better way to be a protector than mm-hmm. to just say everybody should have a gun at any moment? And I think if we say to men, especially men who are not already bought into this this caricature, what I think is a cartoon caricature, a cartoonish version of manhood. I'm not saying that we, we're going to change that. A, a guy who puts on a red MAGA hat and, and with an AR-15 and goes to a state house to try to intimidate the state legislature into passing certain kinds of legislation or intimidate protesters from actually ex- exercising their First Amendment rights. By the way, that's the other thing. I mean, people have a right to protest, but if you bring a gun to a protest, <laughs> you're, you're, you're stifling someone's First Amendment rights because the fear of violence is then muting their voice because people don't want to be shot. So therefore, you could say that you have the right to carry that gun because the state of such and such allows you to carry that gun. But the fact of carrying a gun to a small d in a democracy, to a, to a public protest, is an act of intimidation and violence, even if you don't pull the trigger because you're using the, the threat of violence to get your way. So you're using the threat of force to get your way, which is a, frankly, it's a violent act. And it's a suppression of other people's freedom because other people don't have the freedom then to express themselves because they're worried they're going to get shot. And is, is, is this what we want? Is this the democracy that we want? And I would say to men, especially who see themselves as the protectors of their family. And I appreciate that. I mean, I think adults should be the protectors of their family. Adults, not just men. But if you're an adult man, I don't think it's, I have no, I have no hesitation to say part of your responsibility is to protect your family. But is the only way that you can think of to protect your family, to arm yourself to the teeth? Is that really the best way in the 21st century to be a protector? And so I think, I think what, what needs to emerge is this, is a competing definition of 
What does it mean to be a protector? And I think passing gun policy and restricting access of guns, especially with high capacity magazines, semi-automatic weapons, is a form of protector masculinity. And, and, and yet, I think a lot of men who are in that sort of realm are afraid to say some of this stuff out loud, in part because they're worried that they're going to be criticized as being soft and weak and not mm. strong. And yep. listen, to, like, listen to Donald Trump's rhetoric. The rhetoric on January 6th, for example, was all about we need strong, we need strength. That's what we need to take back our country. We need strength. It's all coded references yeah. to the manhood of his followers. And if people don't see that, the, the January right. 6th insurrection of the people who were arrested for crimes committed during that day, 93% were white and 86% were men. But the mainstream conversation about the insurrection was that it was a it was it was a white riot. It was white people who were outraged about you know the increasing racial and ethnic diversity in the country who can't handle that and want to take back control of the country and the narrative of America, if you will. But guess what? Eighty six percent of them were men. So it wasn't just white people. It was overwhelmingly white men. Yeah. And if you look at the videos, I mean, it's 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 right there in plain sight. It's like these are men who are performing a certain kind of heroic, what they see as an heroic masculinity. They're going to take the side of the great leader who invokes this notion of strength to take back our country, Donald Trump. I mean, it's all absurd on yeah. some levels, yeah. but it's the gender subtext is needs to be brought into into the foreground. Yeah, they're called and, the Proud Boys. I mean, it's oh even just like we boys. don't even need to... By the way, by the way, you don't have to assert pride. Last thing, you don't have to assert pride unless what? Unless you have felt shamed. So that even right. the very name Proud Boys suggests that what these guys, even though they're extremists, they, they teach us something, that there's a certain percentage of white men who have felt shamed at, by, by the discourse of... Yeah. You know, the progressive discourse, the feminist discourse about white men as, you know, the, the occupying too much space in the culture and everything else. And pride is an assertion in the face of shame. And so mm -hmm. even though the Proud Boys are, like I said, a small group and an extremist group, I think if we study what motivates these young men to get involved with the Proud Boys, it'll give us a great insight, not just to, to them, but to larger forces in the society and the culture. Um, I, I do have a statement and then a question. I believe in the equality of men and women, for sure. I don't necessarily think that we are the same. I don't think equality means sameness. Um, I have, ex have experienced myself with kids and cousins. What I want to do is um, unvilify, not that you or any of us are doing this, the idea that the only reason why someone may want a gun um, is to feel powerful. When I was a kid, it was fun. Um, I like target practice. I like bowling. I like throwing a ball down a lane and hitting th targets. Um, in the backyard, taking a gun and shooting BB guns was nothing about trying to feel masculine. It was just a fun thing to do. Uh -huh. um, so as we get older, and I have kids like my son that's five and my daughter who's a year younger, they're six and five. He is drawn to wrestling and doing things that are, um, you know, uh, uh, more uh, rough. And she's not. Now, a lot of us can say this is cultural and cartoons that throw things, and that is for sure. But also, since they were young, he likes to, to wrestle and roll around differently than her. So there are certain things that he, uh, not only him and my experience, that boys might be more drawn to as a gender than women or girls. So what, what I'm wanting to understand is as boys get older. And yes, there is this whole masculine thing to feel powerful. 
But is it not also that for boys, it makes sense. I don't think anything wrong with it. Yes, I keep saying that there are crazy people that do it and it's only mentally ill and such and such. But for most of us, we're not trying to feel powerful to wear camouflage. It's fun. It's fun to dress up. It's fun to do this. So maybe for many people, because they are told you're this, you are that, you're that, they're not then able to look at the root problem because they're defensive first, because they feel attacked for just being, you know, um, who they are. That's maybe not necessarily attached to power. And I'm not dismissing that idea, but how, how do we address that for so many people that we know throughout the world that are decent, wonderful people that stand for women's rights, that stand for being kind and loving and and also, it makes sense to them to that guns are okay. Let me just say, I mean, this, is, this isn't about taking away something from men, like their ability to be, you know, playing aggressive sports and, you know, rough and tumble. I was a football player. I mean, I, lo- I, I understand fully all of this. This is about sane policy around killing machines. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. guns are extraordinarily violent and dangerous weapons. And they have to be respected and understood as that. And gun owners are going to have to be at the forefront of that policy change. Mm. It's, mm-hmm. it's going to be gun owners who are going to say, we are outraged that a small extremist minority has been able to create laws under this guise of, of, free, of it being about freedom, which is, I don't believe that for a second. I don't think this is about freedom. This is about sanity. I believe, I believe in freedom as much as anybody. The question is, how do you define freedom? And by the way, the other thing is, I think this is the, the overarching point, is how do you define strength? To me, we, we need to give young men and men, adult men, ways of being strong that are not directly connected to the use of violence or the threat of violence as the only definition of strength. Yeah. So we have to encourage men to think about moral courage, you know, social courage, speaking mm. up in the face of injustice challenging a bully non-violently but speaking up and assertively demanding that people be treated with respect and dignity including yourself without using violence i mean in other words some of these school shooters probably had real bad things happen to them it wasn't their fault that they were bullied or that they were victims of child abuse or neglect they should be you know embraced in a certain sense but the moment that they took that gun in their hand and they started killing people then of course that that's completely crosses a line completely but do, do, they, do we need to reach out to boys and men and, and both say we honor and respect your, your need to be, you know, rough and tumble and to enjoy yourself? And there are uses of guns that aren't toxic and abusive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's important, especially if you want to get people to go the next step in the conversation. Because if they feel like everything about them and everything about the, what they enjoy or identify with is being ridiculed, is being toxified, then they're going to shut you off. And I agree with that. But every, lots of people have been saying, Lots of people, young men around the world have, including in, like, say, in wealthy countries that are similar to the United States in socioeconomic sort of wealth and educational levels. They'll say, we have, we have, kids have plenty of problems. Kids get bullied. Kids have, uh, you know, problems in their families. They have problems in their peer cultures, but we don't have all these mass shootings, but you do. And why Mm -hmm. do you have all these mass shootings? Well, we do because we have gun culture that has gone way beyond target shooting or having BB guns in the backyard and shooting bottles. And we have 18 year olds be able to walk into a store and buy a military style, you know, semi-automatic weapon. Oh, by the way, can I also say before, before we even conclude this conversation, I think it's important to acknowledge another piece of this and, and feminists 
Liz has been on this, a whole bunch of feminist writers and thinkers and journalists have been talking about this. The misogyny and the men's violence against women that is connected to gun violence is very, mm -hmm. very important to mm -hmm. acknowledge and to, 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 to theorize and then to do something about. In other words, well over half, some, in some cases, two thirds of men who commit mass shootings are also domestic violence perpetrators. Mm -hmm. And some of those mass shootings are domestic violence incidents themselves. But a lot of these young men who are school shooters, they'll kill members of their own family, like the Uvalde shooter who shot his grandmother. Adam Lanza killed his own mother in, in, in their home before he went to the, the Newtown school to kill. What is going on with the conflation of men's anger and resentment towards women and and the misogyny that underlies that, um, and and by the way, their fear of feminization, because a lot of the a lot of the, the men mm -hmm. who commit these mass shootings and the young men have fears of being emasculated and made to seem like women. In other words, if and it, if being seeming like women has been so degraded in a sexist mm -hmm. culture that they will commit acts of violence to prove that they're not women. I mean, how can we talk about the subject of gun violence and not talk about misogyny and not mm -hmm. talk about yeah issues related Can't. to gender equity on the other side of the house. I just would love to understand and hope that the world can recognize that we don't let your average person have a bomb, but we recognize right. people can have firecrackers and that's fine. They can have an M80, but no one have bombs because if it's in the hands of the few, it would cause such mass destruction. We recognize nobody can have bombs and no one's arguing like I, my right, I should be able to have a bomb. We mm -hmm. understand that lives mass harm is more important than you owning a bomb. Right. I don't understand why for people that want guns, good, keep your guns, all good. I don't, I don't love the idea, but if you want guns, have them. Okay, let me not argue that point. But can you also not see that for the few, more than a few that get these particular weapons, it causes such mass destruction. Why is that so hard to just say, you can't have it just like a bomb, just like things, you know, just, but have your guns. Why can't they be separated? Yeah. This, uh, Jackson, I think we need to have you back and maybe we can yeah. do a part two at some point. There's, there's so many conflating ideas and points here that just, you can't really separate all of these things and it's all a mesh together and uh, nobody talks about it better than you. So we yeah. know you have to go and run off to a speech. Um, so thank you for your time and hopefully so you can come back and help. You know what, you. maybe we can even have um, audience questions for you. The next yeah. time you come on specific to this idea. type of thing, because I'm sure I, there are, thank you. There are I'd be happy. Questions. I'd be happy to do that. And, and again, I appreciate the opportunity to have this dialogue, even though even though I, I know I talked a lot. But but no. the um, <laughs> that's the point. The frustration. <laughs> I have to say the frustration of some of us over the last several decades. This is not a new conversation. But yet no. we, we those of us in in certain circles take some of this stuff for granted. It's so obviously about manhood. It's so obviously uh, the gun, the gun rights debate is, mm -hmm. is so obviously subtextually about American manhood, especially white American manhood. The, the, you know, the, the idea, the, 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 the motives of the shooters in the school shootings is so clearly connected to their gender sort of sense of themselves as boys and young men and men. And yet, not being able to talk about any of that in the popular conversation, turning on, you know, CNN and having, you see, you see conversations all the time. I've been watching them and, 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 and critiquing them for, you know, 25 years. And, and then no one even says out loud the stuff that we've been talking about just now. You don't have to agree with every point that I or, or Jamie or Justin or Liz makes. You don't have to agree with everything. You could disagree with fundamental pieces of it. But why aren't we having this conversation? Yeah. I think I think we'll find that if once we open up the space for the conversation, hmm. 
the changes that have to happen are much more likely to to come you know to come next because mm-hmm. once we once you open up the conversation it's you start realizing you know this this a lot of this makes sense but what mm-hmm. doesn't make sense is the status quo and the status right. quo i hope that all everybody listening thinks that the status quo is unacceptable and little kids being murdered on the streets of the united states and in their school and in, and people in supermarkets and in churches being murdered with guns that are you know that are made for military style engagement on the battlefield it's not sane social policy and it's not evidence of a healthy culture and i think that if we can if we can have more voices saying that and having an honest dialogue about it it's only to the good so thank you thank you for the opportunity thank you jackson mm, thank you thank so you much jackson we will be right back this is man enough hello and welcome back to man enough uh what wow jackson katz what an what an incredible guy jackson and his work i'm sure liz is similar for you is has profoundly impacted obviously mm-hmm. my work and influenced um so much of even the language that i use and mm-hmm. developing this idea of what man enough is that challenge to men like mm-hmm. can you be man enough to this right to stand up for you know gun control despite it affecting possibly your masculinity one of the things that i kept thinking about as he was talking was the difference between masculinity and femininity and that just by being a boy growing up in america specifically and i want to just i want to siphon the conversation to america because as we know the data shows that we are just simply the worst at this but every single day growing up as a boy unconsciously subconsciously i had to prove that i was a man mm. it's the basis for this podcast it's the basis for the books it's the basis for this movement i had to prove since i was four years old that i was a boy because there was other boys telling me that i wasn't based on something that i did something that i would say based on an attribute and it's not just me it's every boy so we grew up in a culture where every single young boy at a young age is one taught to distrust and hate femininity because the worst thing that can happen to us as boys is that we're called a girl right homophobia called gay and we grew up hating those parts of ourselves hating girls honestly even though we like them and i have to prove to myself every single day with the p word in the patriarchal society that i am enough that i am man enough that i'm a boy enough and then when i'm bullied which i was re- like relentlessly as a young boy i have to find a way to get that power back somehow so what did i do as justin I bullied. I became a bully myself because it would hurt less. So when you're thinking about gender, so as we're thinking about gender as, as it relates to masculinity and school shootings and mass shootings, we cannot remove that as Jackson was saying, because that is literally the only way these boys and men are claiming their power back in a society where it's okay for men to be stripped of their identity simply for existing as men. It's not something that we talk about. So we're so damn afraid to link gender to violence and school shootings 
Because even in doing so, this is how fucked up it is, excuse my language, even in doing so, we are risking being a traitor, as he said, to our own gender. Mm -hmm. Literally, I can be bullied for standing up against bullies, against gun violence, against sexual harassment, against rape, against abortion rights, whatever it is. I can literally be bullied and I can lose my masculinity. Therefore, I am no longer a man and I am the worst thing that I could possibly be, which is either a woman or gay. Well, I was just going to say, you know, also the idea that you have to reclaim that power, you have to be told that you're owed power in order to believe that you should be reclaiming it, right? It is not, uh, right? Like, and, and I think that what, that's what needs to also be really defeated, uh, in our society because the people who are going out and, uh, you you know, sort of doing this, right? Who are going out and, and committing school shootings, it's not trans kids who actually are powerless, right, in many ways in our society. It's not young girls who are being threatened uh, with the risk of sexual harassment and abuse. And right, it's it's not actually the person at the bottom. Right. And so we need to talk about that power structure to talk about. um, And and that's why it's not mental illness, right? That's not a mental illness. That's uh, societal programming that can be undone if, to Jackson Katz's point, we can actually have this conversation. And I think that if you're listening to this and you disagree with some of the things that we're saying, that's a good thing. Because a conversation doesn't mean, you know, um, everyone agrees. A conversation means not. that people who disagree come together and that we're able to talk about this. But to Jackson's point, we're not even able to have that conversation. Um, so I'm, I'm inviting people who, yeah, feel defensive or feel, you know, yeah. uneasy or uncomfortable. Like, that's great. That means you're listening. That means we're talking and let's go. Let's talk about this openly so that we can actually come up with good solutions to this problem. That's why we haven't solved it. We're afraid to talk about it. Yeah. You can't talk about the solution. I also think that. So Jay, a lot of what you had said, I, I agree with. There's a bunch that I don't. Um, right. Speaking to all the mothers and the fathers that have boys that are three and four and five and six years old, I don't believe that my five-year-old and that all my cousins, they're his friends, are going out in the world every day trying to prove their boys. I think inherently they're noble and they're good and their hearts and loving. So for parents who are looking at their boys, hearing us have a conversation like this, I'm not, we're not saying that your child at four and five years old is not just wonderful. And I think it's not as extreme. I don't think it's as blatant as every day they're being told this all the time. They're being told this. I think it's subtle stuff that messes it is with subtle us. stuff. That's yeah. what I'm saying. It's the little things that just, um, that boys are exposed to growing up that eventually, uh, start to, um, infiltrate their thoughts. And then they become eight, nine, and 10 years old, and then faced with hormones, and then faced with seeing the world and uh, what it means to take care of and be a husband and be a, 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 a boy in the world or man in the world. How do I, all these things, and then you're infiltrated with some of these images and thoughts that then shape us in a way that when we're faced with choices, faced with how to um, um, resolve matters with other people, that we then sometimes resort to those uh, maybe animalistic ways that can be harmful. Um, so I would say most everyone listening and and they, we don't want mass shootings. We don't want people to be hurt. You want to protect those around you. I really believe that most people are like that. Why is it that we feel like my right to own this is more important than the right for people to be safe against you know, weapons like this. I think most people can 
can understand this concept, but what is it that gets in the way of them understanding that concept? And then, you know what I mean? Acquiescing to it versus this idea of I have to stand and hold on to it. The thing that's stopping, I believe most people and uh, most men is the fear of being a traitor to their own gender subconsciously of, of, of being a traitor to a entire political party or an entire system to their friends. Because I know a lot of gun owners who believe in the right to bear arms that don't believe that AR-15 should be available. Of course. And the problem is, is that by standing up and saying that as men, they are risking being emasculated by other men who say, oh, like, who would bully them. And this is why it goes back to the four-year-olds, the five-year-olds, the eight-year-olds, where we're not thought, we're not, we're not, it's not a conscious thing that we're thinking about having to prove that we're boys. But when my four and a half year old comes home from school and he starts saying, there's a boy who's five in his class who he's cool. He doesn't cry. Uh, he fights. He can beat anybody up. He plays video games where he shoots people. This is what's starting at five. And then suddenly that becomes cool. That becomes the thing that my son wants to then be. This is where it starts. And then, of course, as you get older, then the power dynamic comes in. It doesn't necessarily start with boys having to prove they're more powerful than other boys at four or five years old. Boys just want to be accepted and liked and loved like everybody mm -hmm. else. Right? Sure. All genders want the same thing. We just want to be accepted and liked. But unique to boys is the power situation because they are, as Liz talked about, we are, those of us who identify as men, we're told that innately, specifically white men, Jamie, because I know it is different for black folks, that power rests in our hands and we have a right to it, especially here yeah. in America. Yeah, it's, I, it's, I agree. It's, it's mm -hmm. subconscious. I think you guys it's, agree. It's, it's, yeah. yeah. I did, we do agree. It's these blanket statements sometimes that I feel can cause someone then to just oh, for sure. put the wall up, right? And I just want to be mindful of that in the way I articulate it. There are a lot of men who I wish thought differently. But it doesn't necessarily mean because they're protecting their manhood. It's because it makes sense to them. They believe I should have that right. And it's only crazy people that that such and such, such and such. It's not because yeah. I'm trying to protect or I think I'm masculine. It's because it makes sense. How do I have, how do we not challenge that issue and say like, how do we, how do we ha make it make sense to you? I agree completely. It's the words that we use. Yeah. And then at the same time, right, as you've said to me, as Liz has said to me, as other important women in my life have said to me, it's like, sometimes we have to, we have to, to use those words. Oh yeah. I don't have the words. And, I hear you. And, and like, like as an example, what's why we don't say toxic masculinity per se on the show very often, because we know what it does and how it divides. But when you're talking about like gun rights, as an, as an example, we've reached, we've reached this point where it's, it's, it's no longer just political jargon. It's, we have to save our children. And, yeah. uh, but yes, we want and to find a way And the people doing have... this are children too, as they Jackson are. pointed out, yeah. which I think yeah. is, you know, we need to want to protect all children, children to, uh, being victims of this and also being perpetrators, right? And this whole idea of wanting to protect boys um, in the same way that we want to protect girls. Um, but I also feel like we should leave people with resources and things that they can do because we've been, you know, talking about it as one thing and that's what we really believe is important. Yes. Um, what can we do, Liz? Also... What can we do? Tell us. Yeah. 
all kinds of organizations that people can join, um, whether it's Every Town or the Sandy Hook Promise. Um, there, there's also, there was a, there's marches. Uh, there was one last weekend. Um, and you can keep up with where your local marches are by following those groups and just systematically voting, um, things can feel helpless. Like people can feel helpless by thinking nothing's changing, but things are changing. I think we have to talk about this in the way that we also talk about climate change, right? Where there's a lot of frustration. There's way too many people who are dying from this, but there are people in government who are trying to change this and supporting those people, supporting their campaigns. Um, and just talking about it with your friends, posting about it on social media. I believe it makes a difference. Um, and, and, and even in your personal life, if, a, if, you know, having these conversations with your family members, with your friends, they're going to listen to you more than they will listen to anyone else. And so you actually have a lot of power. Um, and, and so I, I encourage people to, to use it. And, uh, thank you, Liz. And look, mm -hmm. and to Jamie's point, just because you, uh, let's say you were a gun owner, believe that you want to protect your family as a man. It does not make you bad or wrong. I want to protect my family. What we have to ask ourselves is who are we protecting our family from? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and it's not, and it, and I'm sorry, but it's not women. Agreed. It's not and, women. And, and while you have the right to protect, and I understand that, um, oftentimes we say then what is the other side of that? By having that right, what is the potential damage that it does in other areas? And sometimes we sacrifice. There are rights that I am willing to sacrifice if it means that others are protected, that the world is safe. So even if I wasn't arguing with you that you should have a right to have this and have that, like, let me just say that maybe you do deserve that right. Let's just say that for the moment. But if that right comes, the consequence is so much destruction. Why would we not be willing to say, you know, what? I can forego a right or two for the betterment of all. That seems reasonable. Thank you all so much for listening. We're going to, this is, this is, this conversation doesn't end here. If you have any thoughts or any questions, please DM us, comment on um, the video and uh, maybe we'll have Jackson Katz back and have a, have a part two. As always, if you like our podcast, please like, and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us at manenough.com slash podcasts. And uh, thank you so much for listening. I'm Justin Baldoni. I'm Liz Plank. And I'm Jamie Heath. And Justin, you shared some stuff about your experience as a boy and being bullied and how you then responded. And uh, I went into straight into some other thoughts and I didn't acknowledge that and hear that. And I'm really sorry that that was some of your experience. And I'm proud of what you've become and how you've dealt with it. Thanks for sharing that. I love you. I love you. And whoever you are listening, I love you too. We'll see you next time. Next time. Thank you for listening to the Man Enough podcast, produced by Wayfair Studios and presented by Procter & Gamble in partnership with Cadence 13 and Odyssey Company. Hosted by Justin Baldoni, Liz Plank, and me, Jamie Heath. If you like what you heard, please follow us and tune in weekly as we undefine masculinity and learn in real time. Justin Baldoni, Jamie Heath, and Tara Malhotra-Feinberg from Wayfair Studios, Mark Pritchard and Kerry Rathode from Procter & Gamble, and Chris Corcoran from Cadence 13 are our executive producers. Kahea Kiwaha is our producer. Brandy Cole is head of marketing. Susie Landers O'Connell is our assistant editor. And Josh Schneider is our lead editor. Thanks for listening.